welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. This past Sunday, Palm Sunday at Bethesda Church, Pastor Roy talked about what the death of Jesus means. We encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with Pastor Roy. Well, it's been a great morning, a full morning, and trust you are being blessed as we are worshiping the Lord together. Today for Palm Sunday, I'm going to be sharing a message about what the death of Jesus means. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, we're going to start there. I'm going to be looking at some other passages as well, as this will be a little bit more of a topical type message today. When we contemplate the death of Jesus, we'll just read down through this account uh, so we can get uh, the feel of what is taking place. And this is the record of the triumphal entry. This is Passion Week. This is Passover Week the week before Jesus is going to give his life on the cross. In Matthew 21, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Passover week was a tremendously busy week the crowds would swell for Passover week. They would bring in their lambs. There was many, many lambs that were shed for Passover week for the sins of the people and the sacrifice that would take place. And Jesus comes in. And so why does Jesus bother coming in on this donkey? Well, the first thing we want to see here is here's actually a picture in Jerusalem where they're coming down the hill Uh, with palm branches. There are many celebrations to remember the triumphal entry of Jesus and coming in uh, to the city. The death of Jesus means the fulfillment of prophecy. This is not an accident. Jesus did not die by accident. It was actually the fulfillment of prophecy. Look again back in our text in verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Say, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. During Passover week, they would celebrate the liberation from Egyptian bondage. They would be reminded of that. In Jesus' day, the Jews were looking and longing for a Messiah who would bring not only religious freedom, but political freedom to deliver them from the domination and power of the Romans. 
They anticipated a Messiah who would overthrow the political power of Rome and would take control and build up his kingdom on earth. During Passover, there would be people who would falsely claim to be the Messiah, which would cause a lot of tension, and there would be riots that would break out among the people. The Romans would even station extra soldiers in the city of Jerusalem for crowd control, and they were not afraid to execute somebody who got out of line. The Romans operated with an iron fist. So here's Jesus arriving on the scene on a donkey. The disciples begin joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, according to Luke's gospel. The crowd shouted in unison, Hosanna, which means please save us. Now understand when they said please save us, they were not only talking about save us from our sin, but save us from the Romans. Save us from political bondage and that kind of persecution. They were fed up with the Romans. Jesus came as the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb who would shed His blood to purchase our redemption once and for all. And Jesus did not fit their expectation, coming on a donkey, gentle and quiet. But what I want us to recognize is, is the steps of Jesus were guided by prophecy, by Scripture. I want to look at just a, uh, some verses here in the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells us that Jesus was on a mission to come into Jerusalem to give his life on the cross. Look at this in Luke 9:51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, and every time you would come into the city of Jerusalem, it was always when you came into the city, you were going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a hill. And so you'd be coming up. And notice it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was resolute. He was determined. He was committed to die on the cross for our sin. And we see this all throughout his travels. Luke 13, 22. He went on his way through the towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He never shied away from that mission. He was willing to fulfill prophecy. Luke 17, 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Again, on his way to Jerusalem. Luke 18, 31 is another verse. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Why? He was fulfilling prophecy. Also Luke 19, 28. And when he had said these things, he went up on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So it was all to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus was going to give his life on the cross. But here's the thing. Jesus' steps were guided by the word of God by prophecy. That brings to mind a question for us. Are my steps guided by the Word of God? Am I walking in accordance with the truth? That's what Jesus wants us to live by. So the death of Jesus means the fulfillment of prophecy. It was not an accident. He came to give His life on the cross. The second thing we want to look at here this morning is the death of Jesus means that God understood the seriousness of sin. One of the things that has happened in our day is we have compromised with sin. 
We have relabeled it, we have changed it, we have made it more palatable, more acceptable, even within the church. And we forget that Jesus died on the cross for sin because he hates sin and he was willing to die for it. Romans 4.25 says this, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. I want to remind us this morning of the high cost of sin and what it did to humanity. You remember in Genesis what it did to humanity. It brought pain into the world. It brought toil into the world. Man had to work by the sweat of his brow. Pain. Women would have pain in childbirth. It also brought death into the world. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, going back to Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all men sin. Sin brought wickedness and evil into the world. But let me show you, just, let's just think for a moment how our culture has adapted sin to, to, to the fact that we're comfortable with it. You see, we've changed it. We use different words to make sin more palatable and acceptable and less offensive and not take it as serious as God does. For instance, someone involved in immorality, we say they're having an affair, but the Bible calls it immorality. It is sin before the eyes of God. Two married people, they're living together. The Bible calls them fornicators. That's what the Bible calls them. Someone who lies or tells fibs or a little white lie is a liar. And many people will not even say they're a liar. People who are not on speaking terms. We say, well, they're not on speaking terms. Well, let's just say they hate each other's guts. And they're holding grudges. Right? That's what we've, we've changed. They talk behind people's backs. That's gossipers and slanderers. All of us have a depraved or corrupted nature which causes us to have a propensity towards sin. It's an inward condition or disposition that we all have a bent towards sin, all of us. And we're all subject to the penalty of sin. If you would, take your Bibles for a moment and turn over to Romans chapter 3. We're all in the same boat. All of us are in the same boat. Romans 3, 9 to 12 really lays it out for us. Paul says this, after talking about Jews and Gentiles, he says, what shall we conclude then in Romans 3, 9? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Underline that word, no one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So if it's true that Jesus died on the cross because God understood the seriousness of sin then I think it's important that we actually take some time, a few minutes, to go through nine biblical words that talk about sin. Now, it's not popular, 
And as I look over this list, though, I realize that I, I, I fit many of those categories. So when I say that, I am not telling you that I haven't broken or violated God's word. I, we all have. We're all guilty and, and deserve condemnation. But God in his great, and that's what I want us to understand, the death of Jesus has paid for all this sin. But I want us to take a moment to look at some biblical words for sin to remind us. Number one, it's pronounced kata, but it looks like hata. And this is the most common word for sin in the Old Testament. It occurs 580 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the word, and I'm not going to give you all the Greek and Hebrew words. I'm only doing that for this first one. Uh, this second one is the, the Greek word is hamartia. When we study the theology of sin, it's hamartiology. It means to miss the mark. And this word is actually used over 200 times in the New Testament. So we know it's very, very significant. In secular context, it refers to missing a mark or a way. In Judges chapter 20, verse 16, it speaks of left-handed slingers who could hit a target and not miss. The actual word there meant to hit a target and not sin, to miss. Uh, Proverbs 19.2 talks about the hasty absent-minded man who sins with his feet. In other words, he misses the right path as he travels. In ancient Greek usage of this word in secular literature, it confirms the idea. Some of you will remember the writings of Homer. The word was used over a hundred times in the writings of Homer of a warrior who hurled his spear, but he failed to hit the target. That's that word where, you, where you're throwing and you fail to hit the target. And what God is in essence saying is we have all striven to be righteous people, but we've all missed the target. We've all fallen short. That's why Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and have what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Fallen short means we've all missed the mark because the mark is absolute perfection and all of us are sinners. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin to make up for that shortfall, to give us his righteousness. So we've all fallen short of the standard. Paul is indicating that every human being has fallen short of God's glory and has missed the mark. The story is told of two men who were trying to escape from an erupting volcano. As the fiery molten rock gushed out of its gaping crater, they fled in the only direction that was open to them. And all went well until they came to a stream of hot smoking lava about 30 feet across. Sizing up their situation, they realized their only hope was to get across that wide barrier. One of the men was old. The other one was young and healthy. With a running start, they each tried to leap to safety. The first man went only a few feet through the air before falling into the bubbling mass. The younger, with his greater strength and skill, catapulted himself much farther. Though he almost made it, he still missed the mark. It did not matter that he outdistanced his companion, for he too perished in the burning lava. Here's the point. Some people say, you know... Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm sure not as bad as that guy over there. I'm a sinner. I'm sure not as bad as that woman over there. 
And it doesn't really matter what degree we are a sinner. We all, trying to jump across the chasm, are going to only make it part way and fall short. And it's only the death of Jesus on the cross for sin that allows us to be cleansed. And that's why it's so vital that we have that. So falling short, we go through these other ones here. The second one is transgression. It is to reject God's authority. It's used 134 times approximately. In political context, it means to revolt or rebel against authority, to reject God's authority, to renounce allegiance to God. There's a similar word with transgression that means trespass or offense, and it means to fall down beside. Falling down beside is similar to missing the mark, so that the two words are synonyms. Trespass means to trip or fall. And that's what we do. We trip and fall short of God's standard of perfection. I'm not giving you the technical words, but there's actually two different words. So I put transgression up here twice because there's two different words in the original language that deal with the idea of transgression. The first one is to reject God's authority. The second one can only happen when there is a law to violate. When there is a law to violate. In Romans 4.15, Paul says, For where there is no law, there is no transgression. And this is the other use of the word. In other words, human sin is not just a mistake. It's, it's not just a natural human flaw. It is a deliberate, willful violation of a known law. In classical Greek, it was the term used of breaking an agreement or a surrender, or a peace treaty. Original meanings meant to step beyond or to step over. And in essence, here's what it means, that you and I, because we are born with a sin nature, have not just stepped over God's law, we have stomped on God's law. We have trampled on God's law. And that's why Jesus died. On the cross. Do we understand the seriousness of our sin and why Jesus had to die? And many people not only stomp on it, but they do it and they're happy about it. That's almost unthinkable. The next word is iniquity. Iniquity is used 248 times. Its basic meaning is to bend, to twist, to distort. In relationship to moral behavior, it means crooked behavior, perversions, infractions, iniquity. In the Hebrew mind, there is a strong connection between the evil deed and its punishment. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here he's talking about the punishment for the iniquity. Jesus took our punishment for our iniquity, for our crooked behavior, for our perverseness. Jesus took our punishment. The next word is wickedness or wicked. It means to ruin, injure, or dis injury or distress. Um, it even describes sick or weak cattle. Um, poison water or stew it is good for nothing. Wickedness causes injury and ruin not only to myself, but to other people. Wickedness is unacceptable to God. 
So here we've talked about sin, missing the mark or the standard, transgression to rebel or deviate from the standard, and iniquity is to alter the standard and choose a perverted way of living. And that's what God has brought to us in His Word. There was a famous preacher of many years. He had a clock in their church. He was well, it was well known that the clock had an inability to keep the right time. It would either run too fast or sometimes too slow, and it resisted all attempts to be corrected. Finally, after dubious fame became widespread, the preacher put a sign over the clock that said, don't blame the hands, the trouble lies deeper. And I thought, how true, don't just blame your hands, the trouble lies deeper, it's within our, our heart. And that's what God is reminding us of in His Word. The next word is unrighteousness. Unrighteousness or wrongdoing, it implies the hurting of others. It is the direct opposite of God's righteousness, His standard, and His character. One theologian said, when sinful people insist upon their freedom to sin, they really desire a freedom to destroy themselves and others. They bring injury and harm to themselves and others. The seventh word is lawlessness. It's also considered iniquity. To act contrary to law or to be without law. And we see that over and over in Scripture as well. Number eight, evil. It includes involving others in sin so that corruption can spread. You know how misery loves com company? So does sinners. They enjoy company to promote evil. They want it to spread, and they want to encourage others to be involved in it. Number nine is ungodliness. Ungodliness is a failure to render to God what is due to Him, both in terms of attitude and action. So what is our condition apart from God? Our condition is that man's heart is wicked. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. Man, apart from God, is dead in trespasses and sins. He is alienated and hostile toward God, according to Colossians chapter 1. According to Acts 18, he lives in darkness. And according to Hebrews 2, he is in the grip of Satan. What are the effects of sin? The effects are enslavement, where we become... Sin becomes a habit and even an addiction, and it grips us, it strangles us, it puts us in bondage to keep people living in fear and anxiety and darkness. There's also guilt for violating God's law. The guilt is a result of the condemnation and the shame that a person experiences from disobeying God's commands. And many times people deny personal responsibility, as we saw even in the Garden of Eden, where man denied personal responsibility for their sin. Adam said, hey, it's that woman you gave me over here, rather than taking personal responsibility. So as we see, God understood the seriousness of sin 
The death of Jesus means God understands the seriousness of our sin. But here's the thing. Jesus died for every one of those sins, and not just every one of those sins, but everyone who has committed that sin. You think about the person who has violated you the most in your life. Are they your closest friends? And yet Jesus, even though we have violated him, he comes to us and says, I want you to be my friend. I want to redeem you and be reconciled to me. So the third thing, the death of Jesus means that God longs to redeem all sinners. Every one of those vile, corrupt activities and actions and attitudes, God wants to redeem. That's the wonderful thing about Palm Sunday and Jesus' death on the cross. We see this through the demonstration of God's love. In Romans 5, 8, but God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Michael Card, some of you will remember Michael Card, who uh, is a singer. He wrote in one of his books, on the one hand, the cross is a mirror held up to my sin that shows me through the price that was paid just how thoroughly lost I am. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says, on the other hand, the cross is a window held up to my Lord to show me how greatly loved I am. When we understand the depth of our lostness and the greatness of God's love and the bridging of the gap with the cross, I'm grateful for what Jesus has done for me. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The cross of Jesus gives the gift of God's great love to you and to me. The second thing we see here, well, there's the Romans 5.8. The determination to provide redemption. In Hebrews 12.2, the writer says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross. He was taunted. They said, why don't you come down from the cross? If you're the Son of God, command angels, come down from the cross, and then we'll believe. But remember, we just read moments ago several scriptures in Luke that Jesus' face was set to go to Jerusalem. And while the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, in the near future, they would be shouting, crucify him. And I've tried to put myself in that place. Imagine Jesus riding through town, waving the palm branches, people shouting, yes, Hosanna, Hosanna, please save us. All the while he knew that they were going to be shouting, crucify him in just a few days. I mean, think about that. Going from greatness to humiliation on our behalf. Roman law required that crucifixions were to take place in the most public places. 
because they wanted to humiliate the people so that if they ever thought about breaking Roman law, they would think twice. They're saying, we're going to take care of you. And so they tried to humiliate him. In Jerusalem, it was Passover week. The city would have been filled with people. Jesus would have been a public spectacle hanging on the cross. The death of Jesus would have been at a fever pitch, talked about all over town, the biggest story in town. Jesus was determined to provide redemption. And then we see the proclamation of the victory Christ won. We see this in Revelation chapter 7, 9 to 12. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, for every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne. And the elders and the foreign living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. The proclamation of victory before the Lamb of God who gave his life on the cross for our sin. That's who we worship. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. And we want to worship the Lord. That's what the death of Jesus means. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. It also meant that God understood the seriousness of our sin. And yet was willing to send Jesus to die on the cross. And it also means that God longs to redeem all sinners. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how vile and corrupt you've been. God can take the worst sinner. He takes us from the guttermost and saves us to the uttermost, as it says, for His honor and for His glory. Let's stand for a word of prayer. I would ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. It's never popular to to preach about sin, but yet the Bible talks about it all the time. And so it's really impossible to preach God's Word and not talk about sin. But the good news is there's a remedy for it, unlike cancer (laughs) and some other diseases that we have that there's really no remedy. There's things to slow it down and things to help, but there's no ultimate cure. But there is a cure for sin. There is a cure for the deceitful, wicked, evil heart. So I want to ask you this morning, have you come to that place where you recognize the seriousness of your sin before a holy God? Have you recognized the prophecy of Scripture that Jesus came to die, not just for the sins of the world, He came to die for your sin and for my sin? Do we understand that? Do we understand as we go through that list that we deserve eternal wrath and judgment? 
because of our violation of God's law. But God in His grace sent Jesus to die on the cross because He understood the seriousness of sin. There was no other means for us to be reconciled to holy God. If there was, God would have come up with it. And He would have initiated that plan. But there was no other plan. There is no other plan. And there will be no other plan. And so if you feel guilt inside, that's actually a good thing if you are a sinner because that's the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart, telling you that you need to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. Don't quench the Holy Spirit if He is working in your heart. It doesn't matter if you've been here for a month or if you've been here for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you know him personally? If you were to stand before God today and God says, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? I know mine. God, I recognized you understood the seriousness of sin and you revealed that to me, that I'm a lost sinner. I'm wicked and vile and corrupt apart from Jesus. I don't deserve heaven. But I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sin. And I'm grateful that he did. How about you? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your personal Savior? If you don't, I implore you, I encourage you to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who are believers... Are we walking in the steps, are our steps guided by the Word of God, like Jesus? And are we burdened for those who are yet enslaved by sin to reach out to them, passionately reach out to them with the gospel? God, help us do that. If you have questions about your personal destiny, or you have a personal struggle that you need prayer for, please, I'll be shaking hands at the back door. Speak to myself or someone else that can pray with you about your need today. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is Bethesda M. B.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy.org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.